I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. thing you know and he's like I'll take care of it I'll take yeah. care of it and then sure shit it was taken care of I think he just probably I assume he went over there and it, scared the shit out of this kid great <laughs> my grandfather's rolling over his grave right now you don't talk about the <laughs> well today's guest is Jim Qualteri Jim is a 1996 alum earning his degree in criminal justice after massing over 20 years of experience in the information technology space, Jim currently serves as the Chief Information Officer for Peak Utility Services, where he provides IT strategy and leadership for Peak and its portfolio companies. Jim served in the United States Army, Colorado National Guard, and spent time as a federal officer in the CIA. Jim has long been active in the Colorado community, having served for eight years on the board of directors for the Big Brothers Big Sisters of Colorado. He's currently the president of the MSU Denver Alumni Association and sits as the alumni representative on the MSU Denver Board of Trustees. Jim, we're happy to have you here and welcome to Bird Talk. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited. So let's just start from the beginning. Born here in the Denver area, son of two educators, graduate from high school, joined the Army. What's, I, I did. You know, I, I, I was born here in Denver. My dad was in the military when I was born. He was in Vietnam, lived in Denver all my life, really Westminster is where I grew up. Parents were both school teachers coming from a family of school teachers, graduated from North Glen High School in 1988. And, and you know, at the time, I think uh, I was just not ready for college. I, th- I thought I was, but, you know, I, I took some classes at a community college and uh, just really was looking for some direction and, and discipline, really, and ended up joining the Army kind of on a whim. It, was, it wasn't something I planned out by any means. But How'd your parents deal with that as educators? Were they shocked you know, my, or supportive? My dad was obviously very happy, uh, uh, proud, I guess. Uh, he was in the Army, too. My mom, on the other hand, was not and she said she'll never forgive him if anything ever happened to me. So, but it was truly, it was, it was something, I, I say this all the time, it was something that I'm so glad I did. And I appreciate all the lessons that I learned there. I was on an M1 tank the, the years I was in the active duty military. I would never want to do it again. Yeah. So it's a hard life. I would say even harder now and more different now. Yeah. Different it's, it's ways different. we fight wars, right? We would deploy, but uh, you know, what it did give me is a different perspective. You know, when you go to third world countries or, you know, you deal with some of the stress that you have in the military during wartime and things like that, it, it helps you in the business world and, and in your personal life on, on being able to say, you know, things things aren't as bad as they could be, you know, and you, I do pull on that yeah, quite th- a bit. This isn't life or yeah, death. Yeah, that yeah. is, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it is very nice to, to have that experience. But like I said, I would never want to go back and do it again. <laughs> I think, I think you've aged out. So I think you're okay now, you know, you never know, you, <laughs> you know, never know. You, hope, you hope so, but I still think I'm 22. But, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> and then, but then you wake up and the knees in the back and you go, no, that's I'm right. Not, that's not. right. That's right. But yeah, after the military, I was very focused and very driven. It, it definitely gave me, you know, some life lessons to grow on. When I came out, I was hyper motivated to go back to school. And so I went back to CSU, actually. I enrolled at CSU. I would like to say there were reasons that were extremely important in, in my career, but really it was I was following my girlfriend. Sure. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Not the first or the en- last person enrolled, to do that. Enrolled in, at CSU. And, you know, again, I was a 22-year-old. I'd been a sergeant in the tank corps and, and you know, been in some pretty rough areas. And I did not fit in as a freshman. I really struggled and I struggled to make friends. Um, you know, I was up at 5 a.m. still doing push-ups. I really felt kind of lost. 
most of my friends had graduated already that I was in high school with. So I was, I was not sure. I knew I knew I wanted to go get a degree, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, I, I hadn't found my, my place yet. And I was fortunate enough to be in a sociology class where an FBI agent came in. He was giving a speech and I said, that's what I want to do. That has everything. It has the discipline that I like, the, the mindset that I like, but it's, it's not the military. It's not that kind of lifestyle. So I quickly started doing some research and I wanted to major in criminal justice. Well, at the time, CSU did not have a criminal justice degree. And the only two places that had them was MSU and uh, Mesa. So the next semester I, I made it, I was a year and a half up there and I, I transferred down to MSU and that was a very big turning point for me. Classes were different at the time in 90, this would have been 94. It was very, very much a working person's university. There were no, it was kind of a no frills. And so you had a lot of people that were working full-time jobs that were in and out, you know, they were focused on getting into class, doing what they needed to do, and then they were out. So I didn't have a lot of experience with campus lifestyle. And, and quite frankly, I don't have any friends from that time because I was working 40 hours a week. Yeah. I was in the National Guard and I was taking anywhere from 12 to 15 credits. So it, it went by fast for me. It was, it was a very fun and, and challenging time uh, that I had. But the another big turning point happened while I was here at MSU. Just by luck on a bulletin board, I saw a application for a, an internship that somebody had just posted in the department. And it was for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so you could apply and it was a entire semester that you were going to be down there. It was a national scholarship. I didn't think I really had a chance at it, but I was very passionate when I wrote my letter about it. And luckily I was one of five to get selected. And so that is where I made the contacts to then, uh, after I graduated, become a federal officer. It was a very good experience that, uh, that I did that. I think about that, especially in the 90s. We, I think we've done a nice job of slowly easing. We're, st we're still commutery campus, right? We're still right. not a residential space. But all the stories I hear from all the alums, especially in the 80s and 90s, and even the early 2000s, it was even more than a commuter campus. It was a transactional campus. You're exactly you scheduled right. it like you scheduled it a you business did. meeting. You did. And it was all business. I mean, there was not the you know, the groups and the associations that we have now, fast forwarding to being on the board, you should go back and look at what's going on at MSU and maybe you'd want to be on the board. That's what surprised me so much, coming back on campus and going, wow, this is not the MSU that I I experienced. And I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, even physically too. I mean, the campus had changed probably since you'd been there. Plus, even our, our age demographic has slowly come down. Even I started 10 years ago, and I remember the stats that year was 27 and a half as our average age student. And I think we're down right. to 24, 25 yeah. Yeah. because we're, we're making a play for more of that inclusion, more of that community feel. But there's still a valuable place that it holds in terms of being that space for business. Right. Well, I think I think that's the beauty of it now. It, it has both, you know, a mixture of that. You know, you do have your professional people that are still trying to get their degrees and coming on campus. But you also have your traditional college students that are coming out of high school and going to the university. I think that's fantastic because I do think the – we'll call it the professional people that are trying to get their degree do give some insight and some guidance to those students 
that, you know, you wouldn't get at a CU or a CSU. We talk about it all the time, the diversity in the classroom, whether it's mm-hmm. age, diversity, experience, race, mm-hmm. ethnicity, you name it. It adds to the collective conversation to provide a, a level of education you're not getting right. in other places. Mm-hmm. And you'd be cheated to not have because you're going to get that as soon as you get in the workforce. Right. Because we're surrounded by people that have different experiences, different thought processes, different you know, values, whatever that case might be. Right. And so I think there's such a value there. I think where, where the challenge comes for the institution as it is now is how do we be everything to everyone? That is a challenge. And I think, you, you know, you don't want to lose your identity and what got you here and, and the population that you serve. But at the same time, there is something to open the doors and expand into other student populations that you, you know, normally would have served in the past. I think what else was unique for me at the time was the professors. When I went to some of the other universities, you had a traditional professor, somebody that, you know, got their undergrad, probably got their master's and their PhD, and they've been in the education system. Most of my professors were retired police officers or lawyers. I know Joe Sandoval at the time, he was on the Denver City Council. I mean, they had some experiences, real life experiences in my major that made it really interesting when I was in those classes. We've talked at length about how that is such a great value add for this institution is that you have the real world Mm -hmm. meeting the academic space. I went to a four-year institution initially, my first undergraduate degree that was purely academic. Mm -hmm. Everyone being taught by Dr. So-and-so who spent their whole life in academia. Super great value there. I mean, most of the books that I read in my majors were written by my professors because right. they were at the top of their game. You had to buy them. And that is a, yeah. correct. That is fantastic. Triple the cost. Now, yeah. now, to be fair, I did study religion. So most of yeah. this is when it's historical <laughs> stuff. It's like, well, no one's actually doing that because we're talking about things that happened centuries ago, right? But there is such a huge value to our our mixture of faculty here that have such real world experiences that they can mm-hmm. bring in here. They can tell you, here's the theory, here's the practice, here's what happens. Here are the things and the barriers that might come in your way that is going to force us to really work on some of those intangible skills of how do we communicate? How do we problem solve? How do we critically think? Right? Yeah. And again, at the time, you know, from what I remember, because it's been a little little ways, but you know, it was really nice to, you weren't reading out of the book about some of the laws. Joe Sandoval was telling you how it applied to him in a situation when he was a a cop for, for three years, you know, before he went to law school. And so it it made an impact. You had a, you had a real life event that applied to the classroom. Yeah. It's what I think contributes so heavily to the, the conversation that we have with our business and industry partners mm-hmm. that say, no, our, we, we prefer to hire MSU Denver students because they come in ready to work. Mm-hmm. And I think for years, that could be, I mean, you could perceive that in so many ways. And I think for years for MSU Denver, for Metro State in the day, right, there was a negative connotation that came with that. To me, I hear that as such a positive, like, no, 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 not only did we equip them with the expertise that they need, but we also provide practical experience and practical examples and real teaching on the fly so that they really can hit the ground running when mm-hmm. they start. And you're not spending the first year teaching them how to be a professional, teaching them how to you know, apply what they've learned in this space. They've already done that. You're exactly right. And I think that back to what you said, that there was, I don't know if it was a negative connotation, but definitely that we were not at the same level as a CU or a CSU. What I've realized, though, is some of those classes, definitely some of the real world experiences that I got to listen to. Definitely, I applied later on in life. A lot of the legal classes that I had, you know, people say, oh, you're never going to use that. I read contracts all day now. You know, I pick up on things that I never would have. But that started there. You know, it really did start there. I I think that MSU was definitely that commuter type university, but it's not that anymore, which is is good. 
You yeah. know, they, we do have that foundation and we still serve that student population, but we also have opened up into another uh, area that we, you know, that's been very beneficial to the community. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I, I think about that, you know, we talked about the age changing. We have much more traditional age students. What that's also doing is ensuring that our roadrunner students and our alums, once they graduate, are going to be in our industry and in our ecosystem for a much longer time. Exactly. With this experience, with their hopefully great student experience, their great education to be able mm-hmm. to just continue to grow that legacy of what this institution is. Absolutely. Because yeah. we're still young. I mean, 60 years old, that's not long for nothing. an institution. Yeah, it's nothing. It's incredible to see what has happened in the last 10 years, what's going to happen in the next 15, 20, mm-hmm. right? And you see it already. I mean, as I said, the campus is completely different. The mindset, the 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 groups and associations I've found that are just amazing. The people that run them, the people that are a part of them, it's definitely a more focused and mature university now, more so than it's ever been. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hey, take listen. that as a personal compliment. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I've said this before, obviously the faculty and staff, I've always had a lot of respect for, but I've seen changes within the the administration that have really made a difference. And, you know, and I do think it starts with President Davidson, you know, she brings a very professional business-like approach to this university and it's really made a big difference. I think so. Yes. Yes. And that's the end of the podcast. Thank Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) I have a response to that. No, I think, I think you're spot on. It's a, it's been an interesting transformation and it'll be curious to see where it goes. Yeah. Okay, so I do want to ask you a little bit about your job progression. So we talked about Mm -hmm. joining the Army, coming, getting your degree, ending up in the federal space for a bit, and then you transferred to IT in your 30s. Yeah, it was was very difficult to get into the agency. It took over a year, and quite frankly, you hear about it all the time with some of the special operations units and things like that. It's, it's more of a mental game than it is a, a physical game. And so the entire process was really to try to make you quit or not to give up. And so they would challenge me to fly out to D.C. for interviews on my own with my own money that I may not be reimbursed with. I was continuously, I wouldn't say demeaned during the interview process, but I was definitely told – I was once called a bullet catcher. You're just a glorified bullet catcher. There's really nothing special about you. And the whole idea is to get people – into those positions that are mentally strong, that are going to have adversity in their life. Once you think everything's going to be okay, all of a sudden it's not again and how you get through it. And so I got to the point during the interview process after a year that I I finally was like, this is not for me. I'm going to give up. I interestingly enough, got a phone call within two weeks after that, that I was hired. So I was like, Oh my gosh. So it was an emotional roller coaster, (laughs) but I graduated in would have been, August, right? August. And was hired in September. Hmm. So it was very quick. And then I moved to DC. It was my dream job. I loved it. I loved everything I did. I got to travel. I got to meet presidents and heads of state. And it was just the most amazing thing. But it was back in a time where, you know, you didn't communicate with your spouse or anybody when you left. And so I was gone seven months out of the year Hmm. and I was just gone. Uh, it's, it's not like I picked up a cell phone and called. I was just <laughs> right. So that lasted for about three years and, and I had to make a decision. And the decision was, did I want to have a family and be married or did I want to be with the agency? And so I picked up and came back to Colorado and didn't really know what I was going to do, but I was transferring my clearances out to the Fed Center and I was mm-hmm. going to work at Sixth and Kipling. And just by chance, I was really, 
really bored. I didn't know what to do. It was taking, you know, like the government always does, it takes three or four months. And I, so I took a temp job during uh, Y2K, right before Y2K. Oh, remember that? Yeah. Man, what a panic. And, the world and, was going to end. And so I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about IT. The important lesson for me here was um, you may get a degree in something, but I would find that most people don't work in that field. You know, so you're going to have a change. And I think we do put a lot of uh, stress on, on people of, hey, you got to know what you're going to do at 21, mm-hmm. at 22. And I'm a little more forgiving. I don't think you do, unless you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. But you don't necessarily need to have everything figured out at a young age. It's going to materialize over time and opportunities are going to present themselves. And so I had a different kind of mindset. I had been in very stressful situations and combat zones in third world countries. And so I just had a different mindset at the age of 29. I took a temp job with an oil and gas company here in town called Mark West Hydrocarbon. And I was very fortunate to have a, a gentleman, his name was Dave Malik. He was from Canada and he was a great IT person, but more importantly, he was an amazing teacher and a mentor. When I came on, he gave me a bunch of tasks to do. And I, I think I stayed till midnight that night doing them all. And I came in the next day at five and I said, hey, you know, I don't have anything to do. And he goes, do you want a job? And I go, well, Dave, I don't know anything about IT. And he goes, no, I'll teach you. Yeah. And so it kind of started off like that. I did help desk and I told Dave, I, I didn't know anything about help desk. I don't think I can help. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> I do. And he's like, I'll teach you. And then he wanted me to be the system administrator. I said, Dave, I don't know anything about that. I'll teach you. And then Dave left one day and he said, I'm moving on. And he said, I think you should be the network manager. And I go, I don't know anything about this. And he goes, you do. He goes, you have leadership skills. That's what you need. And so at that point in time, it was an oil and gas company at around, I think we were around 300 million. So we were very small, very small for oil and gas. And there was a gentleman, well, the majority owner, his name was John Fox. And John was very much a mentor to me too. And so John was in his, probably his mid to late sixties then. And he started on M&A work. He decided that we could not grow as a company unless we did M&A. And I didn't know what that was at the time, but he said, I want you a part of the team because I need you doing some of the IT stuff. And so I got exposed to the business side of IT, which was really important for my career. And I liked it. I liked the M&A side. So we started acquiring and we grew to uh, almost a billion dollars when I left in um, geez, when it had been 2006. And the reason I left, I hired a company to do an integration for me of a, a gas company we just bought. And the company was named, it was Nexus Tech. They failed miserably. I told them that they had to have the project done by mid-December. Well, about this time, November, I could tell it wasn't going to happen. So I flew down uh, to Corpus Christi where we bought the plant and I kind of got everything dialed in and everything. And we ended up a week late on that December 15th deadline or whatever. And the owner called me and he apologized. And he said, you know, are you in trouble? Do I need to call the CEO and have a discussion? I said, no. We weren't supposed to have this done till end of January, but, you know, I wasn't going to tell you that, you know. And so he laughed and he goes, you want a job? And I go, I don't know, that MSP's face is rough. And he said, no, he goes, he goes I think he would like it. And I went to John Fox, who was the CEO of Mark West, and I said, you know, he wants me to come over and he's offering me some ownership in it. And he goes, um, you're going. Hmm. I'm kicking you out right now. You're going. And it really did 
turn out to be a fantastic opportunity. And there was three owners in that, Don and Rob, and we did very well in building that company. And then we decided that uh, we weren't built, we weren't growing fast enough. And so this started another part of my career when we sold Nexus Tech. Uh, we sold it to private equity. And anybody that knows private equity, it's about making money more so than it is about growing business sometimes. And so it's a little more complicated than that. But that was surprisingly one of the more stressful times in my life. We had a New York firm, private equity based, that was focused very much on profits. That was not my mindset. My mindset was with the people and growing and those mm -hmm. types of things. And we grew it. And we sold it again in 2017. And I understood the two different types of mentality of doing that. And so that's when I kind of got a little bit of a name for myself of being into the technology, into the private equity world. And so that has been my career since I come in and help companies grow for sale. That's awesome. And I would have to imagine that, especially now in 2023, that having the IT lens as you're being a consultant and someone that is advising these businesses has to be so valuable. I think about, like I was just recently talking with Richard McNamee at our cybersecurity center and doing some support for them. They're, mm -hmm. you know, pitching a lot of their new ideas, looking for funding support. So I've been working on them on building some nice proposals. So I had to learn everything there is to learn about <laughs> cybersecurity right. in four days, right? Mm -hmm. And so I know it all, obviously. But reading and learning in that space, like it is such a threat at this point in time, like our, our weaknesses and vulnerability to cyber attacks and what that can actually mean and what that costs and the trillions mm -hmm. of dollars that are being spent because there just wasn't proactive efforts is to me as like a risk management lens focused person is like, that is a right. huge area right. <laughs> of concern. And it is one of those weakness points that we need to mitigate immediately. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine your level of expertise in that space, walking into businesses can also help shape that kind of protection. So they're not falling victim to, to certain threats and certain things that might come out of cyber. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, you know, what I've, what I coach people on or especially technology professionals now is there are times when we, as mid-level managers, senior level managers, we focus on what I call the geek stuff, right? We're talking about software. We're talking about databases. We're talking about switching routing and all that stuff. Business doesn't want to hear that. No. Business doesn't want to hear that. And so the CIO of today needs to almost understand business more than they understand the technology. Hire the technology people. But if you understand the business, that's where your real value is. So I, I talk a lot about cybersecurity threats, not from a technical level, but I tell them, here's our risk as a business. We will, you know, we could potentially use, you know, 2.5 million on this or, you know, 7 million on this. If we did that, here's our risk. Here's how this affects our insurance rates because I know the business. Now that resonates with a board or with senior leadership. If I start talking about, you know, hackers and things like that, the, the, the eyes just roll back in their head and they, you know, they go to sleep. But then I go back into the office and I talk with my team about, okay, and you can translate it. Okay. Right? Super geeks. Here we go. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. Well, and yeah, I think yeah. that's it. Like some of the most incredible statistics that I was reading in that is that, and I don't know the numbers, um, mm -hmm. but it was a very, very low percentage of board members and CEOs, C-suite level people that actually care, understand, or know any of that stuff. Right. And so you mm -hmm. have to take that as a given. We're mm -hmm. not going to be able to educate all of them and make them aware. Earlier uh, in this podcast, we've talked to uh, Ian Tafoya, who's one of our alums, and he talks at length about, uh, he's, a, he's a climate activist and right. an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And I asked him the kind of the same question, like, you can't educate everyone. There's just going to be people that don't care. Right. So if we stop that education, no, not stop, 
love it. We know we need to continue to do it, but we know we're not going to touch everyone because p- some people are just unwilling to learn. Mm-hmm. The skill set that you're talking about is being able to understand both worlds, have your feet in both sides, and recognize that they don't give a crap about the mumbo jumbo mm-hmm. of you know, mm. whatever, but they care about money. Find out what their interest is, translate it. You're this translator to say, this is going to cost this, but it's going to save us this. This is where our, you know, our risk assessment is pointing to. These are our greatest areas of liability. We need to button these up. Then you're in a space that you're actually accomplishing what you're trying to do, which is make it safer anyhow. And that's it. And you just have to be able to to understand what role that person is that you're talking to and make an impact with, with the technology without mentioning technology. Exactly. I mean, cause the, the bottom line is that everybody is, everyone's inherently selfish to an extent. Right, right. right. And so if I'm, if I'm Joe Schmo that's working in whatever department, my concern at that moment is my workload, my yeah. pay, my, this, my, yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. And I don't think that we have enough senior leaders globally, like mm-hmm. across this nation that are willing to recognize that just because it's important here doesn't mean we can just say that. We have to go to the people. We need to understand. We need to understand those it. things. And we have to translate That's that. That's exactly right. What a great value add. I mean, those are, those are the indispensable roles mm-hmm. when you ask me. And I joke oftentimes with my staff that, you know, I've been here 10 years now and, and I couldn't really tell you what my job is anymore right, <laughs> because right, we've right. been so lucky to build a team because we've had mm-hmm. more success. We then get more resources. We're able mm-hmm. to touch, you know, expand our, our outreach to more alums. We're raising more money. All of these things is great. But the jobs that I started with where I was literally crafting, mm-hmm. I was designing pieces of mail and crafting language to send out in this. And then I was literally at the alumni events setting up the tables and setting up the food that I probably just picked up from Costco because we didn't even have caterers, right? Right. Those were my jobs. I don't do any of those things anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't have that functional space. I literally just translate what are our university's needs Mm -hmm. with what can our alumni provide in that space and vice versa. What are our alumni's needs and how do we get to the space where we're actually giving people what they need? but not using language that either doesn't understand. Exactly. And I talk to a lot of students and they're like, well, if I can't change, I can't change a career at this point. I, yes, you can. If you have a passion for it and you want to do it, one, you're going to be healthier. You're going to be better off. But don't underestimate the experience you had in some other industry or some other thing that you were doing that it changes the dynamic or changes the way of thinking of what, where you want to go. Yeah, the transferability is so important. I think about Absolutely. that. I mean, I went to law school much later than the average mm-hmm. student did. To the point that I had never taken notes on like a computer because it was like, no, we handwritten right. notes when I was there. And then I'm watching all these kids on their laptops and then half of them are online shopping or doing this. And I'm like, <laughs> we are in law school. This is serious. That's you right. know, I had a lot of judgy stuff. But I realized real quickly that it was like, no, that experience and having taken everything that I learned before to that it was just a different way of thinking and a different way of understanding. I remember grabbing concepts a little bit easier than some of my classmates that mm-hmm. were a little bit more traditional aged because I mean, law school, they teach things so much differently. It's not a book that you read that's like, and here's how you do this. Nope, mm-hmm. read the case law, figure it out, and then we'll talk through the reasoning mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And it was so much easier for me to do because I understood how we went from A to Z, right. where a lot of younger, whether it's younger people, less developed, less experienced, whatever the case might be, they're looking for a list of one, things. Two, three, one, two, four, three, five, here's yep. how it goes. And it never like, goes no, like that. No, like you got to yeah. read between the lines. You got to infer. Sometimes you got to reverse engineer. Yeah. You're saying all the right things. What what it comes down to is what I alluded to earlier, that mental toughness. Yeah. Things are going to change in life. Things are, you're going to get curveballs. You know, your, your scholarship that you were counting on at one point in time is now gone. The money that you had earned needs to be applied somewhere else, housing expenses. And you've got to be able to look at the situation and go, I'm okay. I'm going to get through this one way or the other. And the mental toughness is hard to learn, but it's a valuable lesson. 
I'm wondering if you can share a time with us where you were able to identify failure resiliency or that mental toughness that really led to this philosophy of yours. Um, I, I think at every level I've failed. You know, in the military, it was difficult, whether it was a physical challenge or sometimes, you know, obviously a mental challenge. I can remember, um, you know, a, a gunnery, which for a tanker is like the most important thing. It was understood that I was going to do very well in this gunnery. I failed miserably. I panicked, right? I was 21 years old. I was in a tank. I failed. I screwed it all up. Now it turned out okay. And looking back on it, I was like, who cares? It was a gunnery and you were tanking, you're 21. But at the time, I thought, my, I thought, my gosh, it's my career's my career, over. I'll never life. get promoted. Yeah, yeah, I was in, you know, in school. I remember at CSU failing my biology class. Now, is that a huge deal? Not, now it's not. But looking back at it, it was my first semester of me trying to go back to college. I thought I was over at Nexus Tech. We failed every day. We had 500 customers. Somebody in the company messed up every single day, and it was stressful and it was hard. You're going to face adversity at every level. It's just the people that can look at themselves and go, yeah, mess that up. I need to be better. I understand the lesson now. It's not going to happen again. Yeah, we, we've important. talked about it before. I mean, my world has been sports before, mm -hmm. you know, higher ed administration. And I think of sports and military in similar veins in mm -hmm. that regard. Absolutely. We learn so many intangible skills in those spaces, and that's why I'm the biggest advocate ever that all kids should participate in some sport at some point in time because mm -hmm. you're learning things. You're not going to find in other places, but that end up being exactly those things that create mm -hmm. your mental fortitude, mm -hmm. right? You learn when to lead. You learn when to follow. You learn, especially as a softball player, like I failed. I'm awesome if I fail seven right. out of ten times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm first team all conference, mm -hmm. and I fail seven out of ten times. Yep. If you can't bounce back from those situations mm -hmm. and be able to say, yep, not this time, but what did I learn? You know, mm -hmm. if I've got a three, two count, I can't be sitting on this or she's going to go outside with this or her go-to pitches, whatever. And so you're learning those things and you're applying those things. And those are the skill sets that set people apart in general. hundred percent. And I would say as a hiring manager now, I look for that. Yeah. So somebody walks in my office and they say, listen, I have this certification. I've done this. That's great. Maybe you are a right fit. If I have somebody else who walks in my office and says, I will try over and over again, I'm going to make a mistake and I just love what I do. I have a passion for what I do, but I don't know everything, but I'm coachable. That sometimes means more to me oh, than, coachability than, than somebody, at the heart you know, of it. when you have somebody that is passionate about what they do, dedicated to what they do, and is not overly worried about making a mistake and learning from it. Yeah. yeah, I think we've almost weaponized kind of this word accountability lately where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, you got to have accountable for your actions. Believe me, I 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. But we've turned it into this thing to make somebody feel like you're never allowed to mess up. That, that's and a, that's so not okay. It's a great point. And I tell people this all the time. I don't care if you make a mistake. Right? I do care about people who just don't care about what they do and they're, they're indifferent about it, right? They know something needs to be done, but they decide not to do it just because they don't want to or something. Right. That is a trait I don't necessarily like on my team. But somebody that will do something for the better of the company or for our employees and they make mistakes, but it was unintentional, 
I'll back them up every single day. You know, yeah, that's, there's there's a that's lot okay. to be said when you're assuming good intentions from people, mm-hmm. and you know that that word accountability doesn't mean that I'm not going to take responsibility for that, but that it's okay to try and fail because you can still be accountable when you say, "Yeah, tried that, didn't work." Right. I yeah. joke all the time here whenever we go through uh, interview processes and we hire a lot of people around mm-hmm. campus. I sit on a lot of interview committees, and people always ask inevitably, "What's your favorite thing about MSU Denver?" And I always say, uh, "It's that no one ever says no to me." Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's great with that is that I do get a lot of flexibility to try creative things, to do new things, mm-hmm. all with this good intent behind it. Half of them fail miserably. Yep. And I think as a leader, if you give that permission, that vibe, that counsel to your team, and they have no fear of doing that, that's really when you see the creativity yeah. come from employees. It's when you have a very, in my opinion, a very regimented way of, you know, we'll say some of the deadlines or deliverables or things like that. It's not that we don't have to have that. When you bring anxiety into your job, you have people that are more worried about failing than they are about succeeding. And And then the consequences of failing if you haven't created a space where failure is accepted. To a certain level. I mean, mean, you're a habitual failure. Get out of here. Yeah, that's right. Did you know the Office of Alumni Relations provides free career support to all alumni for life? We have a wide variety of career resources, including one-on-one career coaching, life design coaching, webinars, free access to LinkedIn learning, in-person networking events, and much more. Visit our website for more information on how to access your free benefits and services. This episode is brought to you by The Chicken That Crossed the Road. Funny, back in 1847. Really engaged in student stuff. So, so what brought you back? Why did you all of a sudden say, hey, Jamie, well, let's get a beer? Jamie, I am so <laughs> glad you brought this up because I've been wanting to confront you about this. I think I may be the only board member that you fired and brought back. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, this is, this is a very hard story for me. I've never been fired. There's from some tissues board. over there if uh, you want to grab those. <laughs> so I was working with a company called RK Mechanical, which is one of the largest mechanical contractors here in the state or really in the region, John Kenning is one of the owners of, of RK Mechanical, and he's on the foundation board. Yes. John's very active with MSU Denver, and he started a program that helped some of our tradespeople at RK gain college credits mm-hmm. to MSU, and so that they had a uh, an end to then start a degree if they wanted a degree. Great program. In the process, it came out, and I was talking with him, that I went to MSU. And he's like, well, are you engaged? And I said, well, no, I haven't been. And, you know, <laughs> that's not kind of how MSU is. And he goes, yes, it very much is. And so he said, I'd like you to just at least look at it and see uh, if there's something you can do to help contribute. And that's when the discussion came about the alumni board, which I was very interested in and excited We got into the pandemic, and I left RK, and there was no communication. I just thought, well – the board's not meeting because of the pandemic. And so little did I know, Jamie was emailing the RK email address, you know, and I'm not answering. And I can remember one of the board members, the president of the board at the time, sent an email out and I got one unrelated to the uh, alumni board. And I just responded back. It was Joe Rice. And yeah. I said, hey, Joe, 
we ever going to meet again? He goes, who are you? And I go, I'm a board member. And he goes, you're not on the board. I go, I've been fired? He goes, yeah. So, so I called Jamie. I was like, hey, I think you fired me. She's like, you, you never responded to anything. You're off the board. I was like, can I get back on? <laughs> yes, sir. Wait, this is just a real communication sound right there. Uh, but again, failure is okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We were perfectly, it was understandable. <laughs> yeah. The pandemic was here. I mean, there I was, was like, this is the email address. He's like, was that's it, not the right one. Wasn't it was, a, was it a normal situation? No. So it wasn't a hard firing. It was just he stopped, you know, he stopped responding. So I was like, take him off the list. Yeah, it's get fine. him out of here. Yeah. We won't see anything. I was. I think I had, I had made two board meetings mm-hmm. and, and then it was over after that. So then I re-engaged, which was fantastic. And you were still, mm-hmm. well, I know you still are now, but, but, but you were more active. Now, now She's it's Brandy. <laughs> and it has been just very rewarding from my standpoint to see how we've changed, how we've grown over the years. Some of the board members that we have on right now are just fantastic. The groups that we've created, the associations have just been amazing. That has been one thing that I've just been really excited to watch and be a part of. Yeah, the momentum and the I've talked about it on this podcast. The momentum since I stopped and Brandy started has been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, Brandy has done an incredible job of a really thoughtful recruitment. So we were very thoughtful in bringing on board members that have the passion, that mm-hmm. have the interests, that are, are fueled and ready to go with great levels of expertise. So kind of the, the pedigree of our board has been elevated, which mm-hmm. has been incredible. The work that we've done in the student retention area and the admissions to support the university has been great. Absolutely. And, and the board members now are very focused on the mission of what we have. And so being an HSI is at the forefront of mm-hmm. what our discussions and what we do, but also the community that we serve and where our place is. And it has been a wonderful experience to see some of the board members and some of their ideas and, and what they want to do. And it's starting to translate into, you know, we're recognizing as MSU alum, we're not very well represented on the foundation board, on the board of trustees. Not not for anybody's uh, any specific reason, but as an alum, I want to see greater participation in both those boards. Yeah, we talked to Russell Knowles on this podcast yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. And him, especially as the first alum that has ever been a mm-hmm. trustee chair, mm-hmm. um, him saying, no, 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 this is a this is a directive from me that I want to make sure that we mm-hmm. are integrating these boards and working mm-hmm. together and having a pathway there. And I, I couldn't thank him more for that. And we just have a, some amazing alums out there. And engagement is always a topic. But I think the way our alumni do attend MSU, that we do have to do a better job at making sure that we're focused on getting them engaged and making sure that they understand that they have value to come back and help us. Yeah, and, and that there's still value for them, too, as alums Absolutely. in that space, right? It's a weird dance of we want to make sure that we give you enough support as an alum so that you can see that there's this continuing relationship between us and you and we still mm-hmm. are a value add for you. But also at some point, like, you can provide so much more and amplify our student experience if some of what we provide you turns back to service for us, right? It, it is. Yeah, I tell this to prospective board members all the time, whether I was with Big Brothers Big Sisters or whether with the MSU alumni board board, 80% of this has to be about the university and students and the mission. 
20% of this has to be what do you get out of it too. There has to be something yeah. that you get out of it too. And it does. It helps both when that happens. Yeah. So as the president of the Alumni Association, you do get to sit on the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. Has that been eye-opening for you? Has it reshaped or kind of supplemented the, the new ways that you've thought about MSU Denver when you think back to not having been here since 96 and then John Kinning saying, oh, no, it's a different place. Yeah, it's a different kind Now of you place. got a front row seat. It is. I think if you look at the board of trustees right now, it's very impressive individuals that are that are sitting there. They are not people that are showing up and sitting there passively to get through a board meeting. They are very focused on making a better experience for MSU and for the students here. I'm just impressed overall with who we have on the board. I think that the board of trustees is a little bit different than most university boards is because they're appointed by the governor. I've been excited to watch some of the newer trustees come in, the ideas and the experiences that they bring to the table. And just really, even though they're not alums, to bring the passion of some of the, the causes that we're trying to champion throughout the university. It's, it's been very impressive. Yeah, it's always a half terrifying moment when you realize a trustee is rolling off and you're like, who are we going to get? You know, And well, I know we work closely with the governor's office to say, here are people that would be great. We provide lists of things. But at the end of the day, it's their choice. That's right. And so and you don't know what you're getting, but we've been very fortunate. When you know that Russell's going to roll off in January, you, you have anxiety. You're mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, no, there no, can be nobody better than Russell. You do see the newer trustees coming in and they're just as impressive in a lot of ways. And they bring so much to the table on what they're going to do for MSU. So yeah. very excited. And I can't say enough. It really does, in my opinion, start with Janine. President Davidson has done just an amazing job. And to have her in those board meetings and provide guidance in there is really something that everybody should be a part of and watch. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Ruby, any other thoughts? I have so many thoughts. I know. <laughs> what would you tell a student or an alum about soft skills and how to transfer careers? Because you did that so fluidly. Yeah. It's a very good question. I think if I look back, I am so fortunate to have some of the mentors that were willing to give me their time and their knowledge. I told you about Dave Malik, yeah. um, John Fox, you know, those are the two that come to mind. But throughout my life and my career, I've always had very good mentors that were willing to spend. Find a mentor. Mm -hmm. Even though you may be a senior at the university, that does not mean that you don't have value as a mentor to a sophomore, mm -hmm. right? You've been through something that they haven't yet. So get back, get back in that respect. Be patient. We're in a society and in a time where we want everything now. And if we don't get it, we get frustrated and we quit. Don't quit. Find a way to do it. Be mentally tough and just realize that you're going to have adversity and everybody does. Mm -hmm. We all think that because of Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and everything else that everybody has an easier path to success than we do. It's not true. And so we're all going to have to go through it. And it's the people that are patient and that work hard and understand that they're going to have to get through some difficult times that you're going to be able to be successful. And success doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be a title. It can be in so many different ways. And be happy about that. I don't think we appreciate that enough. I think those are the important things for me. You don't have to be an expert in the field that you come out of. But if you work hard and you're focused and know how to deal with adversity, you're going to be you're going to be successful. I do love that idea of not having to be an expert in that space because the reality is the world's changing so quickly anyhow that information's so out of mm -hmm. date whenever. So if we can have solace in the fact that we don't know mm -hmm. half of 
a quarter, whatever. We don't know any of a thing that we're supposed to know, but have that willingness to persevere, continue mm -hmm. to learn, mm -hmm. and to stay actively engaged in those spaces. There's no limit to what's going to no, happen. No, And just be open to other people's ideas. Again, I think we've gotten to a point now where we're, we're pretty siloed and and we want to hang out with certain groups, people with certain ideas. And when you open your mind and you listen, sometimes it really does give you a different perspective on how you can approach things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love what you said about mentors too. I've also been very fortunate to have mm -hmm. mentors along the way and I've been a mentor. And what I realize that I think we don't talk enough about mentorship is the idea that sometimes it is just simply for someone to know that they have a mentor, that they have someone should something happen if they don't feel there. It is a safety net that and, we can all do at such an easy cost. And the important part of that is non-threatening. Right, right. You know, Safe I go space. back to when you say something, I would love to start a business doing it. And somebody says, oh, that's a horrible idea. That's stupid. When you have somebody that goes, will guide you through the thought process, not tell you what to do, but guide you through your own thoughts and how to get there, that is truly a mentor that you want to have. It's very hard for people, I think, sometimes to not argue whatever case or articulate mm -hmm. the facts based on like the merit of your idea mm -hmm. or the merit of what you're doing. So much of mentorship, so much of support, so much of creating that environment and space where you feel mm -hmm. free to try and mm -hmm. fail is that we're not actually attacking what you think. Mm -hmm. We're just helping to support along the way. And so right. if you can hear, you can hear the world's stupidest idea mm -hmm. in your brain. It can be that, but I can still support you. Turns out you may have insight and different uh, communities that you're part of where that's not a stupid idea. Well, it's just a stupid idea to me. Well, and I will say that giving you the confidence to go through that process, I was like, you need, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking you need to go through this so you fail, so you learn. The reality is, is some of those people became successful and I look back and I went, whoa, right. I didn't think that was ever possible, right. but wow, you, you did something I never could have done. That's rewarding as a mentor. I was a part of that. And not any one of us has all of the knowledge to know what is going to work no. or not work. Yeah. Again, it's based on our preferences and our experiences, how we grew up, the communities that we're a part of. So something mm -hmm. that might sound absurd to me that you say might be totally fine in another space and have wings to go mm -hmm. anywhere. So I think the the thing I like to consider in that space is get past the merits of it. You're mm -hmm. not talking about what the thing is or isn't. Let's talk about the process. Let's right. talk about the support. Let's talk about what you need in order to be successful. And boy, I listened to Jim when he failed at 38 and boy, I'm not going to do that stupid thing. <laughs> When I'm 24. <laughs> I'm going to make sure the board has two email addresses for me. <laughs> exactly right. uh, Travis Luther was our very first yeah, guest on yeah. this. And that was the first thing I was like, so a couple great businesses. He's like, and a two dozen shitty ones. Yeah, yeah. Just a bunch of crappy out the ones. window, you know, and that there's so much value in that. Uh -huh. Before we get too much further away from mentorship, I'm wondering if, Jim, you could mention UpNotch as a, sort of a board stamped of approved place where our alumni can immediately start. UpNotch was something that when I got on the board, I became a part of very quickly. Right away, I had several students ask to speak with me. I, I think there were 30-minute sessions, if I remember right. It was very rewarding for me. You know, the feedback I got from the students is it really did help them. You know, it was that confidence of, am I doing the right thing? You know, I have to make a decision on a career, on a, on a major right now. Mm, maybe not. You know, why don't you take some more electives, give it another semester and, and decide, well, if I choose this major, then I'm going to be locked into it for the rest of my life. No, that's not how it works. Let me tell you what happened with me. And those were very good sessions and I think very rewarding to both the mentors and the students also. Yeah, yeah. our College of Business is one of our biggest programs that has partnered mm -hmm. with us is UpNotch. 
So for those of you listening, it is an online mentoring platform. Mm -hmm. We match our entire alumni population who have opted into wanting to serve as a mentor with students, again, many of whom are in the College of Business because most of our College of Business faculty know the value Mm -hmm. of the mentorship. And so they have incorporated into their curriculum. And so they have to do a resume review or a career conversation or some sort of mock interview. And it's a great opportunity not only for our students to get engagement and FaceTime with our alums, but to pass on that information. Because when you are hearing in one voice, whether it's from your family, from your community, from faculty, Mm -hmm. your advisor saying, you have to, you have to, you have to. Yeah. You need that other voice, that contradicting voice that says, maybe you don't. You need to figure out what's best for you, but maybe you don't. And especially for some of our students that I know that are first generation, you're navigating this alone. So you can't go to your father, your mother, your aunt, your uncle sometimes to to get this guidance. So to have somebody say, now think about it this way, or you may want to try this. It really does. It's a very small amount of time, but it does make a very big impact. A huge difference. And I think you're spot on too, especially with our our population of students, many of whom are first generation, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're coming into a situation as many of us do the first time we're doing anything. Mm-hmm. But like, here's the recipe for success. Mm-hmm. And I can't deviate from it because I knew one person who did this right. and that's how they did it. So I have to replicate yep. it. And the reality is there's a lot of twists and turns that mm-hmm. can happen. There's a lot of shortcuts in places. There's a mm-hmm. lot of <laughs> high roads and low roads. And to have somebody in that non-judgment space that's just going to be able to offer the chance to be heard and yep. say, it's possible, right? Yeah, say I remember crying after that class. <laughs> I, I remember getting an F on that paper and thinking I should quit. Or or I remember being, you know, at my junior year, second semester, just being exhausted and tired. And not that I wasn't going to go on, but that nobody else was having this experience. It was just me. When you have somebody that can relate back to that moment and share their feelings, it does give you a little bit of energy, a little bit of pop. Yeah, you get in yeah. such a tunnel vision mode when, and your self-awareness goes out yeah. the door, right? When you're experiencing that level of pressure or whatever mm. the case might be. And especially mm. the younger we are, the less tools and skills right. do we have to be able to manage that or the lived experience to be like, I'm going to be okay at right. the end of this. Yeah. It's going to suck for right now, but I'll be okay. I didn't share this earlier, but you know, I was not a great student in high school. So the thought that I could actually go and graduate from a university, I just, I wanted to believe I could do it, but I wasn't sure. I was also, I didn't know at the time I had dyslexia. Hmm. So that was part of my experience in high school that I didn't know was affecting my university experience. When I graduated, I've had what I would consider a lot of things I'm proud of that I've done. Graduating from MSU is one of the top ones simply because I never thought I could actually do it. And so when I did it, I was so happy. I'll tell you, I was more relieved. (laughs) Sure. And this is a really funny thing. I would say about once or twice a year, I have a dream where I wake up that somebody tells me I'm, I'm six credits short and I have to go back and I'm like, I don't think I can do it. Like, really? I have to go back. I wake up and I have this anxiety, you know, that I have, and it takes a little while to burn off, but I still have this feeling that my college experience was something that I'm very grateful that I did, but can't believe it ever actually happened. I still have the dream once or twice a year where uh, I'm all of a sudden in a class and they're talking about the final or the midterm or final Mm -hmm. that's going to happen. And I'm like, "Mm, I'm not registered in that class. And then they're like, oh no, you've been in. And it's always like a science class. It's like Uh a biology. And I'm like, how am I going to pass this? How am I going to, I don't know why we still have those. 
I think it's yeah. all just the how mm-hmm. much anxiety and stress you're dealing with at mm-hmm. those times and not having the tools to get yeah. through them. And now we're just reliving them for the next 20, 30 years, you know? That's right. One of my favorite stories is when I was at Nexus Tech, I had somebody working. His name was Michael Rector. He was a senior systems administrator. Michael is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was truly gifted in technology. You find in my field, every once in a while you run across uh, one of those people, but it's not common. He came to me and said that he wanted to go back and he wanted to get a degree. So we set up a program really around Michael that he could go back and we would pay part of his tuition. Well, after we sold, um, so this is like 2012, 2011. Michael had gone on to another position and I lost track of him, you know, like you do so much in your career with, with people you work with. I think it was last year I was at a commencement ceremony. I was up on stage Mm -hmm. and I came down sitting in the waiting room for the next one. And all of a sudden I heard Jim and it's Michael and he's in a cap and gown. No kidding. So we're talking, he, he gets up and he hugs me and we talk, I go, what are you doing? He goes, I just graduated. I said, you're kidding me. It's been 12, 12 years. years. I think he's been going to school for 12 years. And so Michael, I don't know how old Michael is. He's probably in his early 40s. I said, that is fantastic. I can't believe it. I said, where are you at? And he goes, well, well I think I'm going to go to medical school. You know, I think a lot of our experiences are that four-year experience. But if it takes you six years, if it takes you eight years, that's okay too. Yeah. You know, do it at your own pace. Get there. Just get there. And, and learn – other things along the way too, yeah, right? Like it yeah. sounds like a very gifted man mm-hmm. in the space and now say in med school, like something yeah. that wouldn't have happened, but maybe had he rushed through it, had he taken mm-hmm. it as just another thing that he needed to do that day instead of experiencing it, taking some yeah. classes outside of the field, expanding his knowledge. You don't know mm-hmm. what you're going to be interested in until you have the opportunity to Absolutely. explore that. So, I didn't know that story. That's oh, incredible. It was amazing. I was so shocked when I saw him. It was such a short meeting because he had to go and I had to, you know, we had another commencement that we had to do. But looking back at it now to think that we started that at Nexus Tech, you know, 12 years ago. For him. Yeah, yeah. for him. And to see it end that day was, was Oh, that fantastic. is so incredible. Yeah, I was very excited. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah. Rapid fire. That's that's the that's the hand signal for okay. our rapid fire questions. All right. all right, Jim, we finish up every conversation with the same three questions to all of our guests. So first one for you. What is your favorite MSU Denver memory? Mm, being in Joe Sandoval's class, he was a very passionate teacher. He had a lot of world world experience, but he made it funny. <laughs> and so he was uh he would insult you with and make you laugh at the same time. It was fun it was fun to be a part of some of his classes. I really enjoyed him as an instructor. That's great. All right, what does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? It is a very I'm very proud to be a roadrunner because I look at the population we serve, the students we serve, that makes me proud. Mm-hmm. I also look at the type of students here in that we are serving a population that works very hard and is very committed to a, at times, a non-traditional way of going to school. You know, we talked about that we have more traditional students coming in, which I think is fantastic, but we still have a very high working population of students that come in. And I, I take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. I think that's great. All right. And the last one, you've kind of answered this, but maybe it's different for students. But if you could put a billboard anywhere on campus with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? Oh, yeah. Mental toughness. <laughs> Stay strong. Yeah. It's easy enough, right? Just, just keep plugging along. I mean, if you move an inch in a day, you've moved. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's good. It's a good day. That lesson, if you can mentally stay strong and deal with adversity in every aspect of your life, you're going to be successful. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, well, I, I love it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have fired you, brought you back on, and thank now you. brought you on the podcast. Exactly. I mean, look at me. I mean, I got fired and, and I'm back. And, Mental uh, toughness. That's yeah. right. I just didn't. I never quit. Right. <laughs> she made fun of me so many times. And, never I quit. And that's here right. we are. Well, <laughs> thank Jim, you, Jim, thank you so much. We'll talk it. to you soon. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Rideout, production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies. <laughs>